good morning. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, we are combining at least two amazing stories in the life of one man. Mr. James Rushing is an accomplished songwriter. He's written hit songs in the genres of country, bluegrass, and gospel music. His songs have been recorded by such artists as Garth Brooks, Dolly Parton, Ricky Skaggs, Charlie Pride, and many others. Mr. Rushing was nominated to the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in both 2017 and 2018. Mr. Rushing is also a military veteran, having served in the 1st Special Forces Group at the very beginning stages of the Vietnam War. Today, he is here to talk about his remarkable life and the lessons he has learned along the way. Mr. Jim Rushing, welcome to History's Hook. Thank you so much. Thank you. Together, we're joined in the studio by my new co-host at History's Hook, Mr. Fred Stalkup. Fred is a musician, producer, and former Curb Records recording artist, and I'm honored to call him a longtime friend. Fred Stalkup, welcome to History's Hook. Good to be here. First off, Mr. Rushing, you currently call Columbia, Tennessee your home. You've only been here a couple of years, but you were born and raised where? Born in Lubbock, Texas. Lubbock, Lubbock Texas. Lubbock, Texas. Yeah. Can I ask what year? Uh, no, <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> no, I was born in uh, November of 1941. Okay. So we're we're approaching uh, my 80th year on the planet, and uh, uh, Lubbock was a great place to grow up because uh, music was in the water. Is that right? Uh, oh, it really was. Uh, music was um, when you when you're born in a place, and none of us knew it then, but. I mean, Buddy Holly was playing out at the Bamboo Club or at the Lubbock Team Club, and um, Waylon Jennings was broadcasting. He was a DJ on uh, KLLL uh, atop the Great Plains Life Building. And, I mean, it was just enormously um, uh, fun to grow up in a place like that. And it was not just, I mean, back then they programmed music the way they felt it. The, D- the DJs didn't have any parameters that they had to work within. They, if they wanted to hear Bill Monroe, and then they wanted to hear Elvis, and then they wanted to hear all of these things, it went together, and and they talked about it, and they brought uh, brought the music to life. Unlike today, canned music, where they shove it in and walk away, they didn't do it then, and that's what drew us in and also drew us to the record store, you know. Talk to me a little bit about Lubbock, Texas, growing up there in the 1940s and 1950s as well. Uh, what's, what's your family life like? What did your parents do? My father was a grocerman. Um, he was a manager of a uh, small grocery store, and my mother worked for Southwestern Bell Telephone. Um, she worked for the. She was a, always a secretary at the time that I knew my mother. She had been an operator before that. As a matter of fact, I still have the chair that she was presented that was her chair through the years that she was an operator. Hmm. But, uh, Daddy, oh, it, it, it was it was really really cool. Um, uh, again, I can remember 
growing up in a time when the red bricks of Broadway um, were, they still are extant in my mind, and I walked them often. Um, the TNMO bus station, uh, Texas, New Mexico, and Oklahoma bus station was right across from Dad's grocery store, and there was a little, um, I guess, a small um, rise along the wall behind three massive uh, comic book um, stand, revolving stands. Right. And I sat, that was my babysitter. When I was down there, I would go across the street and sit there, and all they did was program the great country music that I, I remember, the Lefty Frizzells and the Carl Smith and all of this. And I was sitting there, and I was a, I was a voracious reader, not just of comic books, but I, I admired the uh, the writing in it, and it was good writing, you know. <clears throat> and so I read uh, read that and listened to country music hours, hours, and hours of the time that I was uh, over there, you know. Did you have siblings? I have I had one sister, one sister, an adopted sister. I lost a sister at well three days after birth. In 1945, my sister uh, Helen was adopted, and um, but that's that's the sibling. Um, music has been a big influence. It Huge. sounds like from the time you were very young. Where did you come from? A musical family. Well, we were all big singers, and I was raised in the Baptist church, and um, um, music was just part and parcel of everything that we did. And uh, mother wanted me to be a concert pianist and started me in piano at age four. And she took, um, you know, took piano so that she could assist me, help me read, get into it. And uh, I don't know, it was about 13 or 14 when I acquired my first guitar. And I had a grandmother who uh, always was trying to give musical instruments to me. And so she'd say, uh, Sybil, my mother's name, She'd say, Sybil, buy, buy him a, a fiddle or buy him a trombone or, buy, you know. Mm. And so I, this was always going on. And uh, So they saw musical talent in you or at least they, wanted you to have musical well, talent. Well, they wanted me. And I loved to sing and I loved to um, uh, play. And, and then up until probably up until the time I got to Nashville, I was always behind a piano, okay, and that's where the first writing began. Was at the keyboard, and uh, and I enjoyed that. But then, then here, I got soon after I got to Nashville. Two years after I got to Nashville, Bob McDill became my mentor. Bob, Mc, he's one of the probably uh, I'd say one of the most well-known songwriters, and so he was always mentoring me about what to do. I didn't write with him much. He smoked a cigar, and I, I told him that was uh, not uh, necessarily uh, a happy occasion when I, you know, to have to breathe, <laughs> sure. sit around and breathe that stuff. But uh, he he, uh, he even, I mean, he had a method of doing everything, and so that's where the box came across my lap, and I began to play uh, more and more. I came to Nashville playing the guitar, but uh, Bob wouldn't even take his guitar for years, wouldn't even take it out of open D tuning. Hmm. And I say, why do you want to do this? He said, uh, because I will write a country song if I'm in this. Go into a standard tuning, 
I may not write a country song. And he said, I'm, I, you know, so he had that in mind, and he was that fixated and focused on his career. Interesting. You mentioned you were a voracious reader as a kid. What about school? What about academics? Were you a good student? Did you love school? Uh, through, through the through my um, elementary school years, I was a very good student. I went. I had um, two years of private schooling, and then got into uh, public school, and I was very good. Then I got associated with friends that uh, they were a little wilder than you know. I mean, we loved uh, raise raising hell and uh, uh, so that took me afield and uh, I was a good you know I had the mind for it but I also had the mind for other things sure you know so (laughs) (laughs) you don't want to elaborate on that well no no you called yourself a scamp before we started well I was always getting into trouble I was kicked out of school for fighting and uh, um, more than once no, no, no. <laughs> when I was kicked out of school, um, I was kicked out permanently, and uh, must have been a heck of a fight. <laughs> wow. Well, it it was a um, it was a time when I took took exception to what they were, what I saw or perceived that they were um, telling me to do. So it it was a difficult time, and and so therefore um, I left school. I left school uh, at 16, at 17. I worked for a year and um, then entered the service. What did you do for that year? What kind of work did you do? I did. I worked at the, the same grocery chain that my dad worked for. Okay. And I was a, um, I had, you know, a manager at, six, well, 16 to 17. I was a manager in one of the departments uh, of that uh, chain. And I enjoyed it. But still, it didn't. Uh, it wasn't doing for me what I needed to have done. So the military was your next step. So was that a choice on your part, or you kind of pushed in that direction? Well, I was sort of pushed in that direction to go. Um, my dad wasn't pushing, but the uh, the local authorities were saying that you 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 might want to go, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I listened. I li- you know I listened, and uh, but like I said, it was easy. And I looked to my right a while ago. Um, uh, tell me your name again. Fred. Fred. I, to- I looked at Fred and and I said, uh, we were raised in in a particular environment. All of my dad's uncles, I mean, all of my dad's uncles, all of my uncles, my dad's brothers, had served in World War II. You know, and you, you have to remember, I was born in 41. I was born just a month before the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And then I was in in school, and uh, and they were gone, and I don't remember their serving or anything like that. But when they came back, that was talked about, that was remembered, and you know, it having seen the graphic nature of war, um, then I they imparted that to me, and we were raised with honor and duty and I mean they talked about the flag they really did they talked about the flag it was part of life patriotism they, sounds like patriotism it was part, of, was part, part of it and it and it was not something that today they want you to duck uh, about patriotism they didn't duck patriotism back then and they they wanted to incorporate 
that because they saw a cohesion as advantageous to take into every day that they lived, you know. And um, so um, I went in and <clears throat> at 17, I, I joined in the summer of 1959. And um, Army, this is. I went, yeah, I went to the Army. I signed up for... Um, Airborne. I wanted to go airborne because one of my friends had jumped out of planes, and I thought, well, I got to do that. <laughs> and um, uh, but they found that my aptitude was led them to believe that I should be serving in a missile monitor unit at Fire Island, Alaska. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go to the airborne. And uh, so, between my dad and and uh, George Mahon, who was our um, congressman from that district um i was i got to the airborne and you know what was when i took jump training at uh, fort bragg north carolina okay and they want to rename the base but they're fools if they do um nobody remembers what where the name come came from or anything else and they if they'd leave it alone because there'd been so many people so many uh men and women but mainly men over the course of time that have have trained in that base and that right. that that base has a heritage that's absolutely enormously important you know and they destroy that they're going to they're setting us up for defeat i, uh, I completely with you agree with you completely uh what was the unit that you were attached to 82nd airborne there initially we gyroed uh after jump school we gyroed their word not mine the whole unit went as a unit, 2nd, 503rd, and we went to Okinawa. And it be- later became uh, the 173rd Airborne Brigade. Right. Is that Fort Buckner in Okinawa? Is that where you were? No. It, the Where I was initially uh, located was right, I'm thinking, right north of, of, of a place called Fatima. And, uh, and then I was... Then when I went to Special Forces, which was a, a little while later, because I, I didn't like the junk on the bunk. I was tired of the spit shine boots and junk on the bunk on Saturday morning and that sort of thing. So what <clears throat> what I what I saw in a group of men, and that was before the beret was even thought about, I guess, uh, but they were always going to the field, and I wanted, you know, the boonies. I wanted the boonies. You know, I wanted, I didn't want the junk on the bunk or the spit shine boots. I wanted to be in the boonies. And, uh, You're so, happy to fight, it sounds like. It's just the, the minutia, the spit and polish of military life that didn't. Well, didn't I could appear. do it. I could do it. I was sure. soldier of the month uh, all the time. I mean, I had enough. I mean, I, you got a three-day pass being soldier of the month, and I could be soldier of the month practically every month, you know. <laughs> so, you know, and I knew how to do it. I knew how to, I mean, I really was. Soldiering was a good thing for Mr. Rushing, you know, and I loved it. But also when when I'd see group, and that's the Special Forces group, which was first Special Forces, um, when I'd see them going off to the, you know, to the boonies, and they, you'd know they're gone, and going off island was what I wanted to do, and so I wanted to be over there. And so I was, uh, I was working to get to that end. I didn't, uh, mine was different. My story was different from any 
not anyone, but that was right at the very beginning. Special Forces, as we know it today, was started in 1953, and it started with the 10th Group in Germany. Um, but um, a guy named uh, Aaron, I'll have to think about it. Anyway, they started this group, and um, then the first group st was started a little later on. The crest that they have now that they wear on their on the flash, uh, it was issued in 1961. Uh, it has a V-42 knife and two crossed arrows that came from the scouts. And um, the V-42 I wrote, if you ever wanted to go on your computer, um, there's a song called The V-42. Uh, it was said, it was just nomenclature that uh, Case Knives that made the V-42, which was which was designed by Colonel Robert Frederick. I'm telling you that there, this is, uh, we're at the confluence of much of history. Right, you know? right. So um, the V-42, I wrote the song about it, and now it's used in some of the uh, graduation ceremonies uh, of Special Forces. Wow. Know? So you entered the Army when the United States was officially in peacetime. What did you know about what was happening in Southeast Asia and Vietnam when you entered the military? I didn't know of anything. I really didn't. I didn't. When I got <clears throat> when I got Special Forces, they there were two books, one book. Um, Bernard B. Fall was a professor at Georgetown University and a professor of. It, it, I guess I don't know what he was teaching, but it was geopolitical in nature. And Bernard B. Fall was became one of my, I read every book that he wrote and, and he was later killed um, in Vietnam, hmm. you know, and he had served with the French and had written about the French and this particular book that they was required reading when we went, when I went to Special Forces was a book called Street Without Joy. And um, that's when I began to see what the French and their experience as colonial power in Southeast Asia was all about when they were defeated at Dien Bien Phu in 1954. Um, it was a it was a sad thing. And then we went. I mean, the defeat. They were just overwhelmed. And I know that there was some talk about uh, atomic intervention in that place. It didn't happen. And it's a you know, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but that's that's part of history's hook. Sure. You know? sure, absolutely. Um, you mentioned we're at the convergence of a whole lot of history happening in the time that you're in the military. Let, let's recap just so our listeners understand. You're, you're a cog in a much bigger American political machine. And for Special Forces, you're sort of a key cog in, in the overall plan. So if you consider 1961, Kennedy is uh, uh, president of the United States. He takes office in January of 61. He immediately approves the counterinsurgency plan in Southeast Asia. He, he's seeing communist incursion into the area. He's coming up with a counterinsurgency plan. April of that year, Bay of Pigs happens. A CIA-led insurgency against Castro. It fails miserably. In May, Kennedy approves deployment of a 400-man special forces group to train Army of Republic of Vietnam uh, soldiers to fight the Viet Cong. 
that's sort of where you're coming coming into play. In November of that year, U.S. Special Forces under the CIA start training the Montagnard, who were indigenous people from the highlands of Vietnam uh, to fight Viet Cong. We're going to get into your story in just a second. That's Maxwell right. Taylor, uh, who is Kennedy's main military advisor, sends an eyes-only communication to Kennedy on a visit to Vietnam, calling for U.S. troops to be to be deployed into Vietnam under the guise of flood control in the Mekong Delta. He's seeing a need to have a military presence there. And this is sort of a new idea at this point in time. By January of 1962, you go to Vietnam in 62, February 62. February 62. In January of 62, there are all of 3,205 U.S. military personnel in country at that point in time. By February, when you get there, the strategic, strategic hamlet plan comes into being, which is an idea to win over the locals, to defend local villages, and sort of take the power away from the Viet Cong. In May, Kennedy sends 5,000 Marines and 50 fighter jets to Thailand. Things are starting to ramp up. In July of that year, 14 nations signed the Declaration of Neutrality of Laos in Geneva, calling for all foreign militaries to be out of Laos by October 7th, which is about the time that you end up leaving, if I remember correctly. In in October, all U.S. forces, including special forces, are withdrawn from Laos. Uh, That same month, Cuban Missile Crisis happens. Uh, In December of that year, 11,300 U.S. forces in Vietnam, almost four times the amount uh, from the year previous. So you're getting there just as things are starting to ramp up and really heat Heat up. up, What's your role in 1st Special Forces Group in Vietnam? What are you doing there? Well, I joined a team... uh, in a little place called Hua Kam. It was about nine kilometers uh, west of Da Nang. And th- this was a CIA camp. And we went in there, and the CIA was recruiting, at that time, recruiting Rade Montagnards. Uh, there, were, there were many tribes. Uh, how many, I can't tell you, but at least uh, they were recruiting from the Rade. And... Uh, at one point in our classes, though, how uh, I remember I would go through as many as six interpreters. So the communication is so difficult, so difficult to try to get. So these tribes are have their own languages? They all have their own languages, and they have, uh, uh, and of course, the French preceded us, and the French had taught, the Jesuits had, had taught the language, and a lot of them spoke some French. They came in in loincloths and spears and crossbows and we gave them we gave them um you know uniforms and weapons and began to teach them uh and and our main mission was not hamlet building or that you know the civil defense uh it was more trail watching because that was going to be our our deal this preceded and that's the ho chi minh trail right and go ahead did, uh, were, were you going to ask? Well, what, strategically, I think you're answering it, actually, or tactically speaking, the Montagnard, the thinking to incorporate them into the strategy is that they know the land. They they were great fighters. I mean, the Montagnards were r- real fighters. They had been fighting for years and years and years, and they knew... They knew the land. They could tell you if somebody had been through. They could see if a leaf was broken or, I mean, they knew they knew they could spot enemy before you could ever spot it. Hmm. And they could smell the enemy. I mean, these people were like, much like the uh, Bush people out of Australia. 
you know, and I, I see uh, distinct resemblances between that group. And so we had to train them and then take them out behind the training into the uh, land between our camp and the Laotian border and the Ho Chi Minh Trail and just take them out and lead them and see what they would do and, and uh, you know, <clears throat> try to teach fire discipline um, to them, which was real hard to teach because many of them had automatic weapons. They had Danish Matsons or Swedish Ks. It was really, uh, I'm, I'm giving what comes... Uh, I mean, if they get started and, and, and the VC would probe our position, our perimeter, and... Uh, put two or three rounds in there and first time they do then our troops without the fire discipline they'd open up with automatic weapons and you just you know it would be a mad two minutes you know they had a lot of a lot of ammunition and, and you'd be scared to death that you're going to be ambushed the next morning and won't have any any ammunition to fight it with mm. <laughs> yeah so it's strange you know but there was not a lot of that in our time. There's no hero in me, and there's no hero in the guys. I mean, you you don't. This was not happening all the time. That was at the earliest of early stages of that right. of that war, and so it wasn't. Now I got there, and two uh, there was a firefight that claimed two of our soldiers and two were captured. Um, about the third week I was there. Hmm. And uh, so, and I think those two, uh, a guy named, a sergeant named Marchand and a spec five named James James Gabriel, and they were um, the, set, the third and fourth Special Forces troops to die in that war. Hmm. And there were 684, I believe, killed in the war. The first Special Forces group saw extensive combat in Vietnam, as well as in Laos, in Thailand, uh, in Cambodia. Uh, soldiers from the first uh, Special Forces group earned 296 awards of valor in Southeast Asia, and the group was awarded the Meritorious Unit Citation. The first Special Forces group holds the distinction of having the first and last Special Forces soldiers killed in Vietnam. Captain Harry Kramer was killed 21 October 1957, and Captain Richard Reese was killed 15 December 1973. So you come from a, a unit that's pretty storied. Uh, has it, it quite, is, a, quite a history. You know, it's it's um, it's storied and it's proud. But you know, I have I have an opinion, and I don't think we really appreciate what what these men they gave their life for was the ideal back here. You know, um, and I, I just in, inject that at this point because I, I think we've lost our way. Um, we've made many, uh, well, many, myriad mistakes, okay? And, uh, but yes, it. all of these units, I, I've been to uh, graduation ceremonies after they were using me in one year. They took, flew me back from Montana to Fort Bragg, uh, I think, three times that year just to be at the graduation ceremonies mm -hmm. and um uh, and yeah they're 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 really proud that we've forgotten about what it's all about you know and uh, um i mean i could i could talk for hours and we haven't got hours so <laughs> we're going to take our first break when we come back we'll continue our conversation with mr james rushing you're listening to history's hook mm -hmm. 
Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServePro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. History's Hook, sponsored by ServePro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. All right, then. Here we go, all right. It's the American Honky Tom Barn. Welcome back to History's Hook. You're listening to Garth Brooks sing the song American Honky Tonk Bar Association, a song written, at least in part, by our guest today, Mr. Jim Rushing, who is joining us in studio, along with my co-host, Fred Stalkup. Mr. Rushing, before the break, you were talking about uh, your time in Vietnam and the 1st Special Forces Group, your Green Beret there, uh, training indigenous people to help uh, fight in the earliest part of uh, the Vietnam conflict uh, when America is just getting started. You're there for nine months, is that right? About nine. nine. Not not quite nine. Okay. No. What came next for you after your time in Vietnam? I came back and I initially got, well, I got in in school. I got married and, and got in school and um, went to tech, Texas Tech uh, at Lubbock, Texas, uh, until the summer of 1967. And um, graduated there. I mean, I it's it's it was just real rapid. Um, what did you study? I studied government. That was the I was tr- trying to do a pre-law uh, degree, and then when I I remember the second year that I was there, I came under the influence of two professors: one Robert Lawrence and uh, a Dr. Kyle. And both of these gentlemen um, had worked for think tanks in Washington, the Rand Corporation for Lawrence, and I don't know what Kyle had wor- he had worked for, but I remember he said, walking down the hall one day, he said, uh, he said, you have such a consuming interest, and I, these are the exact words, in, in China and, and Asia, he said, I suggest that you learn Chinese language, he said, it's going to be the focal point of world attention for the next 150 years. That's mm. what he said. And that was in 1963. Yeah, yeah, three. And so the focal point of world attention, he couldn't have been more spot on. Exactly. And so that's 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 sort of set the whole motion. I, I, I knew at that point because I wanted to, I thought I wanted to work for the CIA, and uh, anyway, that's 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 what accounted for the next seven. Let's see, until 1971. Okay, in school. So you didn't go to the CIA. What, didn't go to the CIA. What came next for you? Um, well, after I got 1968, the Tet Offensive. I mean, we you have to imagine or transport yourself back to a West Coast campus during the Vietnam War. And as the war heated up, so did the protest on this side of the pond. And uh, they were liberating my classroom every other day, throwing ink on the wall, marching around the riot squads, coming right behind them, threatening to burn the library. Mm. Uh, Forty, maybe, I'd say as many as 40 people on soapboxes protesting and teaching and trying to agitate 
from Thompson Hall where I, I studied and the student union building. I mean, it was the campus was in nothing but convulsions. And so I determined uh, along about 71, I ain't going to do this. Hmm. I, I, I just I couldn't take it anymore. And the, and um, I wasn't necessarily, I was against the war at that time because we weren't winning anything. We were just pouring money and treasure down the rat hole. And it was Vietnam was, was a rat hole, which see, it started out as a domino theory by right. Dean Rusk. I think that was, I think he's the one that You're spawned right. the domino theory. Right. But by that time, I mean we've lost or soon will have lost uh, fifty eight thousand men over there, and all of that money, and they think they're going someplace, and they're not going in place, you know. And uh, so I was against it. And about that time, as I as I was telling you, I'd always avocationally pursued songwriting. I remember early on, I was in love with a little cheerleader. She wasn't in love with me. So this, the story of unrequited love started falling on, on pieces of paper at the keyboard. <laughs> you know, and so... Um, that's the start of many a country music career. Oh, I'm telling you. I mean, it, you know, and that's, that's where it originated. And um, then I turned, I, I remember I went down and um, acquired... A Martin D eighteen, and I started listing. There was a the last, the last issue of Look magazine. The very last issue was about Nashville songwriters, and on the cover was Chris Christopherson. But in there, there were stories of Mickey Newberry and. Um, um, Where were you living at this time? Was this Lubbock? No, no, no. At this time, I was in Seattle. Oh, okay. At the University of Washington, where I went, where I studied. Um, and it was a beautiful place, uh, exceedingly beautiful. And I studied Chinese there. And uh, are you fluent in Chinese? I was, I was fluent in reading, and perhaps writing, but I never went to Taipei or went to the mainland to study. So as I came here and started studying country music, it just began to dissipate almost instantly. Ah. You know, I no. I, so you I, couldn't I, say history's hook in Chinese for us. No, I couldn't. And uh-huh. and uh, and the deal was, I I had an aptitude for language. We studied three years of Thai. I had three years of of um, Spanish and Thai, and five years of Chinese, and I did well in all of it. But I, you, if you're going to learn the language, you need to go there and immerse yourself Absolutely. in the language. Otherwise, it doesn't take seat. Right. It just didn't, and so when I came here, and I wasn't using it every day, and and acquiring, you know, more and more knowledge about the characters and about the, you know, because I obviously had a foundation for it, but didn't have something that would preserve it. So did you go uh, from there to Nashville? I came from. I flew in here September of 1971 to go to what is known or what was known. And then this was. You know, the fanfare at that time was the DJ convention. And the DJs came here and they had hospitality suites in all of the um, hotels and, you know. Is that the same thing that they call CRS today? Country radio? I think think so. I think so. Yeah, I think it is. Um, But I know then it was the most interesting time, far more interesting than the later uh, 
fanfare, mm-hmm. you know. And, you, I mean, you could get next to people. And, I mean, the schmoozing went on, but the it was just the great time. And then um, I remember I came here, and I had studied of these. Let's see, Chris Gantry, he wrote Dreams of Everyday Housewife, and, and Christofferson, and Tom T. Hall, and all the people that had been my I, albums mentored me and many others. When you listen to them and you begin to study, you begin to dream. I mean, all of these dreams are being fed by the great music, hmm. you know. And that's what was was bringing and brought me here. And that's what fed my fed the fire that was burning in my belly, you know, to do to do what I was pursuing to do. How did you get plugged into the Nashville scene? You know, I mean, networking is so important uh, now, and I'm sure it was then. But you've got to know somebody to... Well, here's... I'm a Christian and proud to be a Christian. But as I left, I remember I was down at uh, the James Robertson Parkway, and right across was the old municipal auditorium, you know, where the, um, uh, I think, the Musicians Hall of Fame is mm-hmm. today. But I was staying in this, and we had called, and I had they had made an office into a room where I could stay for the time. And I came uh, in September for the DJ convention and walking across the street and all this stuff. And, there, you know, all of this, all of the literature that was um, printed at that time was just everywhere. And so I had read an article. I believe it was in Record World. There were three trades at the time. You know, later on it was it was gone. They had Cashbox, Record World, and Billboard. And uh, in Record World, they had written an article writ about Hubert Long International, and Hubert was the um, he was the president of the Country Music Association at that time. And he said, "We're looking for writers." Ah, hmm. I, I, you know, so. And this is the way it was. When when the this convention was over, and I'd gotten to meet, I met David Allen Coe, and he drug me around like a schoolboy through the crowd, and and uh, awesome. <laughs> inter, introduced introduced me to Christopherson, and introduced me to uh, a whole bunch of people. And Tom T. Hall, he was he was giving giving out his isms for that for that time, and you know this. This little old lady who who was said to be Jimmy Dickens' former girlfriend, and she knew everyone, so I didn't doubt it. But she she said, uh, "Tom, uh, this this man, you know." And I'm in my double knits. I'm in my bell bottom double knits and the brightest shirt you could possibly, you know. And I, the, after that, the double knits were ditched, and it was jeans from then on, you know. <laughs> but. At that time, at that time, he he had a drink in both hands, and he said, uh, "Songwriting is like holding a bird." He said, "If you let, if you hold it too tight, you kill it. If you hold it too loose, it flies away. You've got to hold it just right." And he moved on <laughs> through the crowd, you know. <laughs> and so, I, when I was teaching songwriting classes later on, I always imparted that uh, bit of wisdom that didn't come came through me and Tom gave to me on maybe the third day in Nashville. So what amazing an opportunity. So you yeah. came here with no commitment whatsoever. It's once you got here, you immediately made these pretty incredible connections. I yeah, I did, but like I say, I had guitar in a in a case 
guitar case in the left hand, suitcase in the right hand, and I walked from James Robertson Parkway all the way down to past Edge Hill to Mom's boarding house that day, and it was hot. It was a sept, you know, it was a September day, real hot, and uh, I, you know, I remember stopping and looking down uh, what was then Music Row, 16th Avenue South, right? And I was going, and then I walked to Mom's boarding house, and Mom says, "I don't have anything," and she said, "You might try Jenny B. Simmons. She's next door at 1209 16th Avenue South." And I, and I, I walked over there, and Michael B. Huffman, Michael uh, Penn Huffman, uh, who wrote "Tight Fitting Jeans," he's on the he's on the porch. He hadn't done anything either. Wow. So I'll go over there, and and she said, "Jim." She said, "I have a room upstairs, you know, and you know, and so she had four rooms upstairs, and we all shared a bathroom, and it took twenty minutes to draw three inches of water in the bathtub, you know. <laughs> but um, uh, this was this was a cool uh, cool time. So that's where I lived for twenty three months. Well, right? Then who was your first cut? First cut. Yeah. Big Mar- cut. Well. It, Anything was big at that time. <laughs> anything cut, anything was cut. big at that time. Yeah. Uh, the first cut was Mary Kay James, who who Alan Reynolds was producing. And Don, you know, the volume one had had come out shortly after, I'm saying it was 73, no, 72, I guess. And so, and 1226 16th Avenue South was right down the street where they had, and Jack's Tracks was there where Allentown is now. Uh, 1226 is right back this way, and I was right on, and I was walking everywhere I went, you know. And so, I mean, I'd meet Schlitz on the, you know, we were uh, all going to see McDill uh, at the 1226 building. And the first major cut, of course, was Charlie Pride. But this, this this was in 74. No, it was Jeannie Pruitt. Uh, you uh, see, uh, you don't you don't need to move a mountain was the name of the tune, written with William Holyfield, and it was a number nine tune. And but the first cut, and I thought all cuts were major, and this was Mary Kay James. Please help me say no, which I wrote by myself. And you know, it, 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 and and they said after you get a hit, everything comes easy. Not true. <laughs> <laughs> but people start knocking on your door. Well, they start, at least they're not slamming the door. In your face. In your face, <laughs> right. You know, I mean, it's, you want, I have, I have never really had an opportunity to say it enough, but you have to always be careful in a subjective business. All things are subjective, but in a subjective business such as music, there is a blackboard in everyone's mind. And if you're and all names go on this blackboard, and if you get an asterisk by your name, they can tell you, Jim, we just love this, but it's not quite what we're looking for. Mm. And you know, as you're going out the door, that asterisk in the mind comes to play and your tape goes in file 13 and it's you know yeah. that's just that's the way it is so you know you've got to um be cognizant of of what you're doing you know so you got here and you're writing and you ended up on ovation records right i did this that was in 79 i did i had two releases 
but I'd recently got gotten a divorce, and uh, I had I had two boys, and I had a little boy that I was single parenting at the time, and Ryan, he's now uh, doing all the video work for Luke Bryan, but but, cool. but <laughs> I mean at that time he's sleeping on the floor as we're cutting this all these sides for this album that never came out but um yeah i i i did i went i went and i was on a label and it, and first first record went to 81 second one went to 56 i said this might work and then i began to get kind of terrified that that i that what am i going to do with right eye that's what i what i call my young baby and um so actually i i just said i I've got to pull the plug on this because I have to be a songwriter and I have to be close to my son. No mm. kidding. Yeah. So you had the deal, and then you're like, I can't do this. That's right. That's it, it's really interesting uh, because when I got signed, that's when I was I went from making money as a musician to signing a deal and not making any. So it is interesting how. Uh, People think when you sign that thing, man, you're off to the races. Well, I had, I, I had, um, I didn't have these seven-year deals, uh, you know. I, I didn't, and I was Brian Fisher was the head of that label, and Robert John Jones was my producer over there, and also um, the Maggie Cavender was running the publishing company, and um, I mean it was. It, Actually, it's it's sort of a complicated story because there's so so many things that are influencing everything that goes on. It does, and and uh, by the time I had gotten to that point in '79, I'd had a lot of you know a lot of activity uh, for the, for that time. I had a a song I wrote, "Nothing Sure Looked Good on You" with Gene Watson. I wrote, and it was uh, in one trade. In one trade, it was number number one song, but. Uh, it was a good song, and it's been a lasting song. Hey, a number one's a number one. <laughs> it, it doesn't is. matter what what trade. You just say it's a number one. <laughs> well, well. <laughs> then back back then, really, you know, would say, well, it's a number, and we wouldn't qualify it. Yeah, it's a number one. You know. <laughs> Talk to me about your process for writing music. Have you had a standard way of doing it all these years? Yes, sir. I have. It was given to me by Bob McDill a long time ago, and I fashioned, I, I sort of fashioned my own way of imparting to myself, to the paper, and to those in the room uh, how to write. Um, Bob always started from the, he started with a title, and I've sat with him as many as two days. Now, not not that we finished it, but it's just looking for the the correct I, we'd call it an idea or a title, but he's looking for something. And you run. We all kept lists and lists and lists of ideas. Hmm. And you'd read something. I've got some in my phone right now. A lot of them. Uh, but he'd say, "Nah, nah." <laughs> you know. And occasionally he'd say, "That's maybe. That's maybe." You know. But that's you're looking for something, and that's point zero. The title, the title. Then he he would work on a melody, and he would start plugging that that title back into the melody. And he'd work. He would. He believed in finding the words to fit the melody he came up with, 
not stretching the melody to go around the words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of the rock and roll way of writing. Actually, they'll come up. You'll come up with a tune. A lot of guys in the studio, they'll actually just sing the song and sing it like three or four times, and then get the band guys. Okay, what does it sound like? I said here, <laughs> and actually write lyrics that right. Way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I don't. I learned this way, and it worked to yield because it allowed. Once I taught my mind, because the words are the paint that goes on the ca- musical canvas, mm-hmm. and I stretched the canvas real tight. I remember when Varble, he I, he he got this locked in his mind. I said, "Let's stretch the canvas real tight." And he 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 even to this day he'll pull that that line out and <laughs> and rub it into me. But th- that's what McDill he really did emphasize to do it that way and uh i mean 31 number one songs later you can't argue with it no you can't i mean he's had 31 number one records was there any song that uh after you finished writing it you're like this is definitely a hit and it was i thought uh, american honk tonk bar association was a hit but it wasn't american honk tonk it was american redneck bar association and that's the way it was registered and then garth uh, he, he said, I, you know, redneck ain't going to fly. And so uh, my collaborator and I, uh, and I, I believe it was him. But anyway, we almost in, in unison said honky-tonk, American honky-tonk bar association, you know. Mm-hmm. But it sounded like a hit. Yeah. And uh, but what was driving us to the paper and driving us to the writing room was to write a hit. See, and I have to say this, they don't do it this way much, much anymore. One-name songs and two-name songs were standard at that time. There were no three and four much exceptions, of course. So just short title songs. No, no, no. No, I'm talking about the writer. Oh, the writers. The writer under the song. I mean, it got to the point, and it has gotten to the point that the rapidity with which you can write, the more you can produce, the more... And Christofferson, I mean, he didn't... I think he wrote co, co-wrote maybe one or two songs, but he didn't co-write songs. Now uh, it seems like most songs are written by three people. I don't know if you've noticed that. I've, but I've noticed common. that, but I, I've noticed did I have noticed that, but I, I do know that uh, uh, I have a friend of mine uh, who called me up in Montana and he said, so-and-so just released an album and it has uh, 16 songs and 73 writers, you know. <laughs> that sounds about right. You know, uh, there's a little saying that goes, write a word, get a third. Are you familiar with that? Oh, very, very much, very much. And uh, if I gave, I never did treat it that way, and people will attest to this, I never did treat it that way. Write a word, get a third. No. I, I, if I contributed something, I wanted to contribute something. Sure. I wanted it to be part, part of, you know, I could say something, and I say, no charge. That's my, that's my phrase. No charge for this, but I, I hear such and such. And you can take it or leave it. It's no big deal. You yeah. Know? I don't care, you know. And a lot of times they would take it. Yeah. You know. I did, I just didn't want to I didn't want to play the game that was not 
There's not it. Five more. Okay. There seem to be a couple of big themes that are prevalent in your songs. Patriotism certainly comes through, and love, or love lost. Uh, are those defining themes in your own life? They are, yeah. I, my bride of now almost 23 years, her name is Elizabeth, and uh, I had walked, this is my fourth marriage, and uh, I tried it a lot of times, and I didn't. I was... I think I was trying too hard to go out and find, you know, someone else. And I don't know, it was just, I look, I look at my life and, and the experiences. We are what we are at this late age and I'll I'll be 80 uh, in November. And it took a long time and it took full commitment to the phrase, I'm not going to do this again. And I, I was in fervent prayer and said, please deliver me of this stupidity somehow. And uh, she walked to my gate. Elizabeth came to my gate. And I didn't go out and have to find her. And I was living out on a a road in Leaper's Fork. And uh, one day I get a call and said, this lady wants to come over and look at your barn. Uh, I just refurbished an old tobacco barn. And she wants to come and see the work and see if she wouldn't like to use the same guy to do her barn. Well, actually, it was it was called for her to kind of look look me over. And uh, <laughs> anyway, that was that was you know that was it. She came to my she came to my gate. She came to my life, and she and twenty three years later, that's that's history. She's amazing. <laughs> that's a wonderful story. Eighty years young, or going to be, still writing music. Uh, I haven't. I I still I am torn with the idea, but I I I cut an album, and it's cut, but it's not out. And I got so tired of listening to the darn thing, I haven't put anything out. Um, I want to write new music, and there's a lot of things that uh, uh, are bringing me back to this idea. I fell and nearly ripped my right arm off uh, during this ice storm about a month ago or a month and a half ago, and. Uh, so it's kind of uncomfortable putting it around a box right now, but uh, I, yeah, I want to write. I want to write, and there's there's a lot of things percolating or bubbling. Yeah, and it's not all about um, requited or unrequited love. I listened to uh, um, the Idol last night, and uh, you know, man, there's some talent. I don't know where the where those songs are coming from, but um, you know, I. We could sure use a patriotic song right about now. I've got one. I, Alan Chamlin and I wrote called "I Miss America," and it's a it's a good song. It's a great song. It's a great song, Mr. Jim Rushing. Uh, you mentioned earlier in this interview that you've always wanted to contribute something. Well, you've contributed to this world, and we thank you for it. And I thank you for being on the show today, being on History's Hook. Thank right. you for your service to our country as well. Thank we end the show much. not with a quote, but with a song. I want to play When the Last Curtain Falls, sung by George Jones and written by our guest, Jim Rushing. There's no pleasure at all from watching you fall to your knees. We'd like to thank our sponsor, ServPro of Marie and Giles County, for their support. On behalf of Terry Wilcox, our engineer, co-host Fred Stalkup, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook. 
Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to tune in every Saturday at 8 a.m. and Sunday at 6 p.m. right here on WKRM 103.7 FM for a journey through time. Today's edition of History's Hook was sponsored by ServPro of Murray and Giles County. ServPro, faster to any disaster.